Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Scholarship Corporation Radio Network. Heard worldwide on www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com. Your source for college recruiting help, training advice, motivation, and more from pro athletes, coaches, celebrities, and entrepreneurs worldwide. The Athletic Scholarship Corporation found on the web at www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com and also ASC Sports Radio Network. Today's guest, a uh, very diverse background, longevity at uh, Taylor University. Before we get into uh, talking with Coach Stan here, we just want to let everybody know, as I always say, Coach Stan is no in no fashion endorsing or uh, recommending a product or service. So I want to get that out of the way just for the uh, NCAA folks, even though you're in the NAIA, correct? Correct. Coach, um, if you want to give us a little background, Coach Scott Stan, would appreciate it. Sure. I grew up as an Air Force brat, so I lived in Europe a lot of my earlier life and chose Trinity Christian College in Chicago, played there for four years, and went right into teaching science and physical education. And coached, I believe it was eight years at high school level, and then eight years at NCAA Division Three, and now also completing my eighth, but signing on for a ninth year at Taylor University. Now, I, as looking back as a high school coach, and obviously things have changed over the years, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but on the recruiting side and preparation as a high school coach, what was the expectations of you at that point in your career? Really, as a high school coach, the, the expectation was to give the players a, a good experience that um, was an educational benefit to them. Um, the high schools liked players to go on and play in college, but it wasn't something we were being pressured into. And uh, 16 years ago, the decisions were a lot later than they are now. So most of our seniors would start looking and make their decision probably in their senior year. And mm-hmm. now a lot of people are making their decision in their sophomore year or early junior year. So the timeline has got pushed way back in the last decade or so. So I, I would think now the pressure on the high school coach is a little bit stronger from the parents. Would you agree? I agree with the money that so many people are investing in the club scene. There's almost an expectation of payback that, hey, we've invested 40 grand in our son or daughter. We want that paid back. And a lot of times mm-hmm. that falls on the high school coach instead of the club coach. But mm-hmm. the high-level clubs do have a lot of pressure as well in getting Mostly Division One or nothing is sometimes how it's looked on as far as success goes, but that isn't necessarily true and doesn't always reflect in the amount of money the students are offered at other levels. Now, at the club level, and I know you've got some involvement, um, if I'm not mistaken, internationally, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but the club level, when we look at, you know, I've been doing this 13 years, and we look at baseball and, and basketball, AAU, and even soccer, Do you would you agree that it's, maybe some of the club levels diluted and the focus may be on the financial reward? I think so. Um, the club level keeps changing that the MRL in soccer used to be where everybody would want to go because there'd be regional experience. Mm-hmm. And now it's the ECNL and they're playing nationwide. And now there's also the academy programs that women are going to be full-time academy next year, like the guys have been for the past few years at many levels, which takes high school off the plate for them. And it seems like, there's still all the other club levels. So people that are playing on the fourth or fifth team at an age bracket are still thinking 
they're going to go to college and, and play at a high level, and maybe that's not as realistic as it should be. Now, when you're over the span of your career and specifically now, when you're evaluating versus recruiting and what I typically tell our audience is evaluation is a period and obviously it starts earlier now than like you said a moment ago, but the evaluation process is where you information gather, look at ability, get names and start to look at the character and talk to coaches and other people before the, the student athlete may know. When do you start that process at an NAI level? We'll start that process um, if we don't know about them and they're contacting us, we'll start to look at people as freshmen and sophomores in high school and get information on them, talk to their parents, talk to their coaches a little bit, talk to their club coach, mm. um, ask them a bunch of questions and try to find out what they're really looking for because if, if they're not an academic fit or at Taylor a, a Christian fit, if, if both of those aren't in place, it, it doesn't make sense for them to come here. So we're, we're trying to apply a couple filters to them early, mm. and then if they're really interested at that point, then we're seriously recruiting them as juniors and trying to even get them to sign with us sometime in their junior year and then their senior year they don't really have to think about so much what they're going to do and they can have a little bit of peace instead of panic that last year of high school. You, you bring up an interesting point we'll talk about Taylor in a second university in the background but I have consulted and worked with student athletes that have taken on uh, and signed with a Christian or faith-based university and I tell them you have to be really this has to be who you are and, and you're the cloth of who you are and if you go there just because of the financial benefit of some scholarships and grants and, and discounts you're not going to be happy uh, can you elaborate on that have you had in your experience and it doesn't have to be tailored but just in your experience where an athlete maybe made a decision based on soccer and the money and then found out it's not a good fit oh absolutely we've had a couple of those and at my last school on just just the opposite where a kid was very faith-based and the mm -hmm. other school wasn't mm -hmm. and but either way whether you're looking at state school or Christian the, the student needs I believe they really need to know that the school they're going to will fit if, if they suffer a career-ending injury because if you're only there for soccer and then it doesn't work out you are transferring a lot of your credits may not go with you to the next institution Instead of a four-year graduation process, it could be five or five and a half, depending on how far you're into it, which then obviously has financial implications and career-starting implications for them as well. So really, I believe that since the filter is, is pretty steep, that there's a lot of high school, college, high school players that aren't good enough to go into college. So if you're in that group that really is, there's a school for you, but they need to do some homework too in their recruiting process and decide hey, I like the offer, but this isn't the school for me, or hey, I want to play here, but I'm not noticed. What do I have to do to get noticed by this kind of school? And so a little bit of homework both ways is really helpful in the recruiting process. Now, I noticed one thing that stood really out when I did some research, and, and obviously we publish reports, and I'm sure you've seen stuff come across on players, but one thing I noticed about Taylor University, aside from the soccer program, was that they kind of boast that 97% of the student bodies employed or continuing on in grad school within a six-month time frame. That's pretty strong. Yes. Um, and I think, well, if you look at U.S. Newsroom Report, I think it's the ninth year in a row now that they've been ranked number one academically in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So part of that is the students that, that we're attracting on, on the front end. Like, for example, on our team, the average ACT on our team is over 30. These are, these are really smart kids. And... For us, we 
I don't know about nationwide, but we have a high percent of our kids that are going to do medical school, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and they're ready coming in. They're, they're very, very bright. So I, I think one of the reasons that they do so well in the job placement or grad school is these are smart kids coming in, and mm-hmm. we have a very challenging academic program that gets them ready to go on to the next step. And, yeah, my wife teaches chemistry, and these are really, really bright kids on, on the campus who, who do quite well. So I, you also have to get into the college is another part of the, the process. <laughs> Not just Taylor. I mean, that's true of any place. Right, that, right. You know, hey, if you're going to go to Princeton, you have to have the, the academics to get into Princeton as well. So part of that is, is faith-based, part of it's the academic, and then on our team, the culture is, oh, we're going on a trip. Yeah, you're reading on the way to the game, or you're studying in the hotel, and that's just a part of who we are. So there's good amount of academic peer pressure on the students as well. How far out are your the demographics of your student athletes? Are they all over the country or is it really since it's such a uh, really finite you know market for you is it is it local or people know and I mean you've got a lot of filters real tough. Sure we do. Um, We actually have three girls coming from Indiana next year of our class of nine which is the most we've ever had in one class from Indiana. So we do really well in the West Michigan and Chicago suburbs, but I've also had a fair amount of players from Washington State, California, um, a good clump from Texas. We've had a couple kids from Massachusetts and one coming next year. And currently we have a girl um, whose parents were missionaries in the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. and a girl whose parents were also missionaries in Thailand. So that's a pretty pretty big expanse of the planet to find your five to eight players that you're going to typically need in a recruiting class. Now, you guys do some, some missionary work too, correct? Or have? We do. Yeah, we do soccer missions trips where we'll, we go and we do the tourist thing. We do some kind of service project, whether it's handing out food or working in a local school or orphanage. And then we play typically um, semi-pro professional ladies teams because at 18 to 20 years old, that's all that there are in some of these countries that you go and play. Uh, compare the fulfillment you get spiritually and emotionally in, in helping and lending a hand on mission trips versus winning it all. I mean, is it even comparable? Um, I, I don't think so because when they, when they travel overseas, and, and with Taylor, we've, we've done Costa Rica and South Africa for the World Cup, which was a huge, amazing experience. Mm-hmm. When, when they go overseas and suddenly they're just not, they're not girls who play soccer. They're celebrities because they play soccer, and they have this audience of captive people listening to them. And then you beat a professional team overseas, and they're like, wow, you're really good. Tell me about your life. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about why you play. Tell me about Taylor. Um, it, it's overwhelming in a good way for them, and they, they don't realize how powerful the platform of soccer is around the world because they've just been the little sister who plays, but brother's getting all the fame here kind of thing. <laughs> so, so for them, it's it's amazing, and, and going overseas and winning an international tournament is is also really, really cool when you have kids from small colleges, and suddenly they're like, yeah, your TV interview is at 6 p.m., they're like, are what? And they've just never been experienced something or had the experience of being on TV, radio, and in the newspaper just because they're there from America, which is overwhelming, and they like it. They don't feel the pressure. They're just like, wow, this is really cool. Do you see a, a really big gap between the D1, um, D2, D3 players that, you know, you coach now the skill set and you've got all those filters 
which trims down. You've got to make some decisions on character and leadership and academics first and foremost. But do you see a, a dramatic, I don't want to say a fall off because it's not, not a negative. Everybody has their skill set. But uh, it, do you see a difference between D1, D2, and D3 that you've seen compared to what you're coaching now? Um, yes. Um, just to, to speak to the levels that I've, well, I'm at DNAI. So mm-hmm. D3, um, we typically do not play very many D3 teams. And if we do, it's in the spring for fun because we're typically a lot more athletic and mm-hmm. we get to train year-round. So it's, it's almost unfair to the, to the D3 player. Um, D2 is pretty comparable as far as rules and ability level goes that maybe they're really smart and really athletic, but they're missing a soccer piece or two. Mm-hmm. Or they're really good at soccer and really academic, but they're not quite as good on the big field because they're 5'4 instead of 5'8. Mm-hmm. So there, there's some, usually at our level, there's some limitation that, hey, there's a reason why they were a state ODP player but not a national ODP player. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, at the NAI, the thing that some people don't realize is we get players who go on and play professionally afterwards, and that that happens with, with our level. And we also will play against national team players that may not be eligible to play in the NCAA Division One. But um, we're we're pretty strong. Um, obviously, we're, we're nowhere near North Carolina or Notre Dame, but mm-hmm. two springs ago we tied Ball State one-to-one, and it was a good game. But we probably have, on our level, uh, say a team of 25, we probably have 11 or 12 that could play mid-level D1, but our whole roster isn't D1-level players. So we're just not nearly as deep as they are, although we may have a player or two that's better than their best player. But, you know, they can bring in 18 people who can keep going at the same level, and we're like, oh, I don't want to sub because it's going to kill us mm-hmm. if, if we do. But then um, the, the true D1 player, um, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand is there's a mental side to that as well, that if you're not prepared for this to be your job, um, it's probably not a good fit for you. So if you have that skill set but you're a fun-loving, sensitive kid, um, mm-hmm. having the pressure of having to win all the time is just alien to them. So, yeah, it's not just the, the skills or the academics. Sometimes it's the mental toughness of, of the player as well, and that that is one of the differences that our kids are just plain nice people, and they're, they're doing it because they love it, but they're not they're not sacrificing going to class or something, or even saying, I'm going to graduate in five years instead of four so I can play at the highest level. That's not appealing to them. Yeah, and I run into that. I've, I've worked with some young men and, and, and uh, women that skill set-wise, they are D1, but then you look at the character and the drive, and, and there's nothing wrong with it, but they focus and said, you know what, I don't want to be employed per se, and I don't want to be on a full scholarship D1 where I don't have time and if I need to go to class, so their focus is really finishing school in a timely fashion and being successful career-wise, and it's not about the sport. It is not the top priority. And for us, it isn't the top priority, which which makes it kind of frustrating sometimes as a mm-hmm. coach because – got to win and, to keep your yeah. job. <laughs> and, I, and I tell them, hey, for two hours a day, this, Please. <laughs> this is your priority, and you need to leave the academics in the classroom. But – at the same time, when you're in class, I don't need you thinking about soccer the whole time, so you're doing poorly academically. But they need to compartmentalize and, and realize that this is an added bonus to their life and their educational experience. That they're going to get to play at a, at a pretty high level and be really, really competitive and have fun with it. And 
every three or four years, one of them will continue to play after college, but that's not our focus here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's just different. So love the people, but sometimes as a coach, you're like, oh, I wish they were just driven maniacs, but then I should be at a big D1 school if that's really what I wanted in terms of my coaching career. And to tell you the truth, it, it really isn't. I, I love what I'm doing. So this is a great fit. But sometimes you're just like, I wish they worked a little harder at this. Well, in your position at the university, in, in typical of D2s, NAIs, and even threes, you actually have another job aside from just coaching, correct? That's correct. So I'm the director of student athlete academic services. So we have 400 student athletes, and I make sure they all graduate and mm. monitor, the, monitor their academics and provide or arrange for tutoring, writing center, testing mm-hmm. help, things like that that they may need. And it's not too many students, but I have every freshman in class for the first six weeks, and then they do additional study work with me for the whole semester. And then it's from that group finding who may need more services as they go through. So that's my other job. So it's definitely not just coaching. And then at the D3 level, I was an assistant professor in exercise science and environmental science as well. So if the school is even smaller, sometimes you're a valued part of the teaching faculty mm-hmm. as well. So you do wear a couple different hats at the smaller colleges. Now, when you look at a player, either club or or even looking at film, what what's some of the immediate things you look for? Like, for example, I'm a football expert, so when we look at football mm-hmm. tape, we really look at the first few plays. That's your best shot because a highlight tape is the best effort. doesn't mean it's the, the quality that you're looking for, but we know the first couple plays should be their best effort, and you can make a determination pretty quick if they're going to fit. But looking at soccer – in video or even live play, what are you really looking for? Well, part of it's position specific, but um, probably like many coaches, I'm, I'm looking for their touch and their speed. And some of the players who have good touch that aren't fast enough, we just can't change that because that's genetic. You can make them a little quicker, but if they're blazingly fast and their touch may not be quite as good, like, well, I can improve their touch over two or three years, but, you know, if they're a state champion in the 100 meter, I'm really interested because that's a gift. Um, you mentioned the recruiting videos, and I, I was a forward and a goal scorer, so when I'm recruiting a forward and she shows me her first three shots or she's missed the frame of the goal, I'm like, why is that your highlight tape? <laughs> of three years of material, can't you find some goals that you scored? So. I think sometimes when we're looking at these, these videos, there's the idea that, well, coach wants to see my good and my bad. I'm like, I'm going to see plenty of your bad. Can you just show me? I mean, make it a highlight. You're selling yourself. It's like don't, don't put on your resume the, the worst characteristics of you as a human being. You're, you're <laughs> selling your ability to contribute at this level. But um, we are really, we're really trying to find the, from a video the absolute best players we can find. And then we'll start to ask them the questions about, academics and fit and things like that but I also know if a person sends me a video and they're a great player but their GPA is 2.0 yeah not gonna I'll just I'll just send it hey thank you very much but we can't recruit you at this point so and if they're really really good they'll get looks other places so some of that is determined and you can go on the recruiting sites and look up their their GPA and stuff and it's right up there with the video mm-hmm. but yeah, and like you said, we can probably tell in the first three or four minutes of a video if it's a person we're going to continue to explore a recruiting relationship with or if it's just like, no, I don't I don't think so. The level's too low. The speed is too slow. 
the touches off, things like that. Now, let's talk about the um, NAI, and, and you've been around long enough to see the dynamics and the change. The NAI used to be, when I played in the 90s, it was uh, really you went there because you couldn't comply with the, at that, in the 90s, very lenient NCAA rules. Obviously, it's gotten more strict at the NCAA, but I see the NAIs, you know, they have their own eligibility center. They have more structure where kids can't just transfer around whenever they want because they don't like the program or they're not starting right away. Do you feel those changes have really benefited? And maybe not your program, but just as a whole, the NAI competitive landscape? Yeah, I think so. The, the conference we're in, which is the Crossroads League, the schools are all very similar. That they're, they're fairly academic. They offer a decent amount of financial aid, and the soccer programs are, are strong. Um, some of the conferences will have two phenomenal teams and eight that are just really, really bad. And so I, I don't know that across the board the NAI is a completely level landscape when you're looking at some schools that, that have players on, like England's under-21 national team, and you're like, wow, they're, they're competing with local kids from Kentucky. It's just it's a very, very different landscape. And I think the NAI has tightened it up, and it's why some schools have left and it's attracted other schools into the NAI. But I do know when I was at the Division Three level, the joke was that the NAI was the National Association of Ineligible Athletes. That's oh. what they would say about it because, you know, they're like, well, yeah. you only have to be in the top half of your graduating class or have a 2.0, which yeah. that's true for the NAI, but that doesn't help at all with our school's right. requirements. So, yeah, the... It's not like if you're, hey, if you're if you're D1, you're probably going to have X amount and then up to 14.4 scholarships. The NAI can be anywhere from zero to 12, and it just depends on the school. So some schools really struggle, some have it easy, but um, I think it's becoming more level, and we are starting to attract a lot of schools left for Division II, but we're starting to attract more schools into the NAI, which has been encouraging over the last few years. Now, I know you don't have a huge elaborate staff or compliance and some of the luxuries of the big D1 soccer programs, but let's talk about social media. Do you or any of your staff take a peek and say, let me make sure that the, the character issues are there, or do you believe that since they have a 30 on the ACT, the character's good? No, no, you can be smart and socially reprehensible as well. Um, I check every kid that will give me a Twitter handle or their, their Facebook site, and it's actually part of our recruiting questionnaire. We just ask them, they can leave it blank, but there have been many kids that we have not recruited based on things they put out on Twitter. Just like, I don't, I don't want to deal with that for four years. Mm. And, you know, when they're talking about how many parties or how hungover they were for exams in high school, I'm like, this is a pro it just doesn't fit for, for what we want. So no matter what they say, and after that point, it's just like, hey, I, I can't do, I can't do this for there's other schools that you would fit in just fine, but we're probably <laughs> we're probably not one of them for you at this point. Uh, and then even when they get here, we we have a a team um, Facebook account that has every alumni and every current player and everyone who signed with us are all in it, so they can interact and talk. And what was the Taylor experience like for you? What should I expect going in? Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a powerful medium, and I, I think a coach would be foolish not to use it for its good and sometimes it's filtering prospects as well we we consult parents and student athletes and and we tell them that, you know you've got to clean this up we even provide them tools that will catch everything and uh, software and, and clean it up but 
you, you know, you kind of have to take the position that they're young and they're going to make some mistakes or, or say something in a joking fashion. And then it's taken out of totally different content by someone that has a lot of risk. You know, your job is contingent on, um, you know, perhaps winning. It may not be everything at, at you know, your school, but you've got to graduate them. And, and that's one of your core functions in your career right now is getting them placed in, in the real world and jobs. And, and if there's behavior issues, that becomes, you know, a tougher, uh, tougher task. Yeah, and I can guarantee if I was three and fourteen for three years, that, that would be the end of it. I would be <laughs> looking for another. I mean, at any level, right, Christian right. or not, I mean, you're somehow expected to win every year. So I mean, that's that's part of it, and you you don't want to take risks on kids that are just repeating bad behavior after bad behavior, and then putting it out there online, uh, and even sometimes just their email, like I am so hot at gmail dot com. That's, like, hey, you know, that's funny you said like, that. that's funny you said that. I just don't know if that's right. I mean. And I'll ask him about things like that. Or I had one that was heavy metal headbanger at gmail.com. Like, oh, cool. Okay. All right. But, you know, <laughs> please, like, please, everybody, don't email these people. Um, no, we've had employees, people interviewing for a position in a company that deals with minors, student athletes, and consulting. And their, their email handle is of sexual content or something just off the board. And I'm going, right. can't hire this person. And everybody goes, what do you mean? The resume strong. And I said, look at the email address. And they go, Oh, right. How did, yeah. how do you look at that? I said, I look at that more than the resume because the resume is always going to be filling the gaps and the best effort. But it's funny how it, you're one of the few people that have said that, that the email address tells a lot. Well, it does. Cause it's how everybody's associating with you and it's what you, it's what you want to put yourself out there as and I, mean, and I know there's the random ones like like at Taylor's just our initials at taylor.edu I mean those are company generated but when that's what you pick and you want hey I want my friends to know this is my email address <laughs> or I, they're not thinking about it but hey my employer my college coach and all this kind of stuff is going to be looking at that as well it's like sometimes it, they're young and they don't think and it's easy to counsel them to to change it or update it, but the ones that are like, no, this is me, and you can't change it. Like, well, mm -hmm. I don't have to recruit you either. So that's, you know, it it's a filter, and obviously in, in your line of work too, it just makes sense to to do some due diligence to make sure that you give yourself a chance with who you have around you. Now, looking back as a student athlete yourself and a player, and it could be high school or college, um, what would be the the toughest thing that you encountered that you remember just it really challenged you and and how'd you overcome that I think it was hard to go from playing in high school where most of the schools are close to you to hey we have a 12-hour bus trip for a game and you're gonna miss well for me it was like if you miss Thursday being a, a biology person as well you're missing all your labs and so there were two of us that on Saturday we would have to go in and make up labs without any help from the professor at that point. And when you're looking at a um, biology major, and my friend actually ended up being a chiropractor, you really had to know what you were doing. You just didn't go in there and, and blow it off. So if you're looking at a hard academic program where you're going to travel a lot, um, you're missing two hours a day for practice. But if it's two away games in a week, you can miss another 20 hours of being on campus. So the idea that you have to take stuff with you and be disciplined and your friends are maniacs in the hotel and you're like, hey, I've, I've got a cell biology exam that I have to study for. That's just, that's hard. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, 
you're getting to play college soccer and you're getting a good education. And so we counsel our players to say I get to instead of I have to because it's, it's your whole attitude that makes the difference in the long run. And it, it took me a year to really get to that point where I'm like, oh, wow, I get to study this and I get to play soccer. But it was a, it was a big transition where it wasn't just handed to me kind of like it was in high school. It, you become an adult and it's on your own and you have to have the discipline to do it. So Now, how, how about the toughest thing as obviously you've coached at, at various levels, even in some international teams, what would be your toughest, you know, trial there and, and how'd you overcome that? Um, the toughest trials, because uh, my college coaching career has been, has been women and a lot of ladies at the ages of 18 to 20 suffer from lack of confidence. They, they just don't believe they're good enough. Mm-hmm. So, when you take a team of women who maybe three of them play on one team, three play on another, and you take them to Australia and say, you're, you're going here to win the gold medal in this tournament. And they're like, what? And the idea that it's really serious and you are good enough to do this is really, really hard. So I applaud them for having the courage to go on, but some of them have had confidence ruined by high school coaches, club coaches and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the hard thing for me is restoring it to – give them the confidence so that they just believe in themselves they can truly be the player that they are inside. And on a short-term thing, like we're meeting in the L.A. airport, we're going to have one practice together, and then we have five games in pool play. Let's go do this. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really hard. And it, it does take a, a special player to be able to even come into that and, and make it work. Best advice as we wrap up here, um, training for – the high school student athlete, you know, the young ladies, what do you, what would you say is some training advice? And, and, and really what I focus on when I talk about training advice is something that's not going to cost you a million bucks. I mean, there's, there's some things out there you can do that are going to build your skills. Absolutely. And with soccer, you can shoot and juggle and, and work on dribbling on your own. But I think the advice is instead of being the, the lady or the young man who knows that I'm really bad at these three skills and I'm going to go from really bad to just somewhat bad by working hard at them. Find the two or three things that you're really good at and become like the best in your conference at them. Just separate yourself because you become so good at something that when you have that highlight video and the first 30 seconds come up, every coach in America is like, wow, this kid is special. And it's never taking lots of shots with the other foot so that you can just be a, a decent left-footed shooter. It's, it's bending the ball around the wall in three consecutive video clips and scoring in the top right corners. Like, oh my goodness, this kid is amazing. And working on those things that, once again, going back to it, will build your confidence, but also build your skill set and make you stand out. That, that just separates you from the other 2,000 student athletes we're looking at every year kind of thing. On recruiting advice or college selection, what would you tell a parent um, and also a student athlete as far as best advice? Sure. Um, junior year, Get it down to the to the five colleges that you may want to go to based on sports, academics, and fit. And then once you visit at those colleges, it's really important for the athlete to recruit the coach as well as the coach recruit the athlete. Because honestly, I want people here who want to be here. And somebody who every once in a while sends me an email, hey, coach, we played, we won two to one, it was a great game. I'm going to keep having that person in front of me because they want to be noticed. 
instead of the one that you call and every answer is yeah, no, yeah, and it just doesn't feel like they want to be engaged in the process. So we love players who want to be here and do the effort to come, and, and we also will recruit them heavily. Coach Stan, I greatly appreciate your time. I'm sure the listeners do. The content was great, and I look forward to everybody uh, learning a little bit more about Taylor University, and I greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Scholarship Corporation Radio Network, heard worldwide on www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more college recruiting help, training advice, motivation, and more from pro athletes, coaches, celebrities, and entrepreneurs worldwide.